couple of times this last year that I've been able to, to teach in here, I've told you I've been reading a book. I'm a really slow reader. Actually, I was reading a book with a friend, and so we've been, when we could, we read it, and we talk to each other about it. It was this book on spiritual depression, its causes and cure by Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous pastor from England, from Wales. And it's, it's a wonderful book. I really encourage anyone to look it up, find it. It applies to everybody. I think it's one, if you read it and you think, well, I need a book to help me deal with spiritual depression, some fear, some anxiety. Great book. Uh, man, it's so good. I just talking about it with my friend one day, we were like, this seems like when you get saved, there ought to be a little pack of things you get. If you don't have a Bible, here's a Bible. Here's a couple of good books or, or 10 books. And I would put this one in there. Now, it's, it's dense. There's a lot in there. But I've used it for a couple of lessons. And I came back to it when Jerry asked me if I would teach today and thought, well, I think there's something in here that I need to go back to. And Here's something interesting about reading a book. People like C.S. Lewis, there's others who've commented on the, the usefulness of old books. We love to read new things. We love to, to learn new things. He was famous for saying, we need to read old things because it's the old breezes that clear out. It's like a sea breeze. It helps clear the air. Something else we talk about old books is sometimes, maybe you're this way, maybe you're like, uh, forget it, I don't want any more books. But sometimes you've heard people say uh, books are their friends because there's things in those books that they connect with and then you go back to them and you see them again, you're like an old friend. Sometimes you want to reread a book, sometimes you're like, I don't have time to reread a book. But here's another thing I've noticed reading this book with a friend and that um, things are variable in our lives. Things change, uh, circumstances change. Where we are spiritually, where we are physically, our lives can change drastically in a short amount of time. And you may read something in a good book and pass over it and think, well, that's good. That's good for somebody. Somebody needs to hear that. And then you go back and you read it again and you thought, wow, why didn't I listen to that? I didn't know that I read it a little ahead of time or maybe a little past time. So going back and studying this book has been good for me because this is a subject that I've struggled with, and that subject is uh, fear and misplaced faith. And by misplaced faith, I'm not saying you put your faith in the wrong thing, but that you've got faith, but you can't find it. It's missing sometimes. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll open the Word, look at this on this subject, and hopefully by digging into it, it will encourage you, encourage me uh, to grow in our faith and to learn how to apply it. Father God, we thank you for your word. As uh, we've just heard sung, uh, your word is sweeter than honey. Lord, it is uh, the key to our uh, life that we would know you through it. Lord, help it to be sweet to us today. Help it to be clarifying to us, to clear away the clouds, the fog, to make things simple and clear to us that we can orient our lives by your teaching, by your promises by the grace that you're giving us, that you've given us, that you've promised us. Help us, Lord, to know it and to trust in it uh, through your word. Help us to have properly placed fear, Lord, to have a fear of your, your greatness, your power, and to know that you are in control of all things and that to fear things that are not in control, to fear things that are not you, Lord, is misplaced fear. Lord, help us to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 8. We'll go ahead and read read this passage. 
and then look in some details about the story. Luke 8, verse 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And the windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. There was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Let's visualize this story a bit. This story is told in all the synoptic gospels in basically the same way. There's a couple of little differences I want to point out in some phrases. But let's visualize what's going on here. They are near the Sea of Galilee. This is Jesus' ministry. He's, he's going around in the land around the Sea of Galilee. He's performing miracles. He's feeding thousands of people. He's teaching thousands of people. He's with his disciples who he's called out. He has healed sick people. He's given sight to blind people, healed lame people, they can walk. Many things that have been going on. We're going from place to place. Sea of Galilee, there are masses of people that are following him. They've been fed, both physically and spiritually, by his words, and they're following him, and it seems like Jesus wants a break. He says, let's go to the other side of the lake. And this lake, this is the Sea of Galilee. Has anybody in here been to Israel? No, we've had a few people. So the Sea of Galilee, it's a large body of water. Now, how many have been to Lake Buchanan? Maybe a few more. (laughs) Driven by it. The Sea of Galilee surface area is about twice the size of Lake Buchanan. So it's big, but it's not as big as the Great Lakes. It's not an ocean, um, but it's a big, big body of water. And in Israel, where nothing is very big, very small piece of land, uh, it's a significant body of water. And one interesting thing about the Sea of Galilee is there's two important lakes in the Bible, in the land of Israel. There's the Sea of Galilee, and what's the other one? The Dead Sea. And the Jordan River runs into the Sea of Galilee, and it runs out of the Sea of Galilee, and then it runs into the Dead Sea. But nothing leaves the Dead Sea, so the Dead Sea is hypersaline. It's much saltier than the ocean. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Nothing can live in it. But the Sea of Galilee is continually provided with fresh water in... And an outlet. So it's always, it's always a fresh, it's a very fertile lake for fishing, for food source, for thousands and thousands of years. And it was in biblical times. In fact, all of these main characters we know lived and worked on the Sea of Galilee. They were fishermen. There aren't a whole lot of other lakes that you could put a boat in. There are no other lakes you could put a boat in. There's the Sea of Galilee. This is where they fish. So they're connected by the Jordan River. Here's an interesting thing I didn't really realize until I studied a little bit, but the, sea, the Dead Sea is remarkable, very salty, but what also is remarkable about the Dead Sea? It is the lowest place on earth, unless you're under the water in the ocean. If you're at the surface of the Dead Sea, there is nowhere on land or the surface of the water that's lower than that. It is the lowest place in the world below sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level or so. The Sea of Galilee is also below sea level. It is the second lowest body of water in the world. It is 700 feet below sea level. So you've got the Mediterranean Ocean 
And then you got some hills, and then it drops even more. And now you're at the Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level. It's some interesting geography. You've got hills, you've got mountains, you've got a low body of water. And we get storms because air masses move up and down, and they get colder and warmer. And I'm not a meteorologist, but we've seen some of that in the last week. We had this weird fog. It's freezing this morning. It looks like it's going to happen again this week. We're going to have more bad weather. Weather comes because of variability in wind and, and height and water and all these things combined at the Sea of Galilee. So to this day, there are random violent storms that spring up on the Sea of Galilee. There are waves. I've seen video of waves crashing on the Sea of Galilee. Mind you, this is no bigger than two Lake Buchanan's side by side. Waves that are bigger than the ones you would see on the Texas coast. Huge waves that come crashing onto the, to the coast. Now, that's not normal, but it can happen very quickly. And this is what seems to have happened on this day. So there are these great crowds following Jesus, and Jesus seems to desire a getaway. It's like, let's get away from these crowds. Now, we also know that there's a divine appointment across the lake. You're going to see in the next verses. He's going to meet a demon-possessed man. But he says, let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's get in the boat. So we're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of guys who, for the most part, are experienced sailors, fishermen. It was probably one of their boats. There may have been more than one boat, but it might have been Peter's boat. And these men are, throughout the Bible, an illustration for us of the reality of being a person. We're frail, we make mistakes. In the presence of truth and light, we still falter. And the disciples did all the time. And thank the Lord for that, because they're a great example to us. Not do this, but when these things happen, look to the Lord. He has a solution. He is the solution. They get in the boat. Jesus lays down and takes a nap. He's tired. He's been at it. This story shows us the humanity of Christ. We've just come out of the Christmas season. We've come out of time talking about the incarnation, the infleshing, that Christ became man, that he remains man. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. He always will be. This Christ, this Jesus is tired. He needs to take a nap. There are some people that still today, definitely in biblical times, that would deny the humanity of Christ. Well, here's an example. Did Jesus need to sleep? He did. His body was tired. He wanted to take a nap. And apparently sleeps really well. So when I started reading this passage and studying, and I thought, well, maybe the angle I need to take on this is how to sleep well. Because I need to learn. You know, we get older, or we have concerns, and I can't turn my mind off. I hate it. Wake up at 4 o'clock, and you're like, well, let's see if we can get any more out of this. So. I think many of you understand. But Jesus seemed to be pretty good at that. He lays down in a boat. It's not a yacht. He lays down in a boat and he sleeps, and he sleeps hard. The storm rises up. Now, this is a serious storm. This, again, I'm asking you to visualize things. We're in a boat, not much bigger than this row of chairs, but you got these guys in this boat. You got Jesus sleeping in one end of the boat. And it's filling up with water. The storm is violent. The rain is violent. The rain hurts. It's slapping your skin. The wind is beating you. The waves are coming up over the edge of the boat. The water's getting in the boat. You're looking down and thinking, it looks like a lake in the boat. They're bailing water out of the boat with the buckets. Everybody except one guy who's taking a nap. They think they're going to die. 
They think the boat is going to sink. They look at Jesus, and he's still asleep. So they wake him up, and they say, Master, we're going to die. That's what Mark tells us they said. You know, when people say things, sometimes they mean something else, right? Words are unsaid, but you say something. We're going to die, Jesus. Matthew fills in a detail and says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So that's how this is described in Matthew. They say to Jesus, they wake him up and they say, Jesus, Master, Teacher, do you not care what's happening here? We're going to die. And I think the we, they're not being selfish here. They're saying, Jesus, you and us, we're all going to die. Look at this. The water, you're about to be floating as you're sleeping. They'd done all they could, and they were sure they were going to go down. And maybe they woke Jesus thinking, okay, Jesus, wake up and help us bail this water out of here. Maybe they woke him because they thought he could perform a miracle. They'd seen it. There's some desperation, though, in what they say. Maybe they woke him just so they could know that he knows what they're thinking and feeling, right? We do that sometimes, a little passive aggressiveness. I want you to know that this is not all right, even though it doesn't really matter if you know or not. You need to know. know, I want you to feel my distress. Sometimes we think that makes our distress a little less. Somebody else can share in it. And uh, we sometimes, in a helpful way, can help somebody in their distress by sharing in their distress. But does it change the facts on the ground? No. The boat is sinking. Maybe they wanted him to feel as bad as they felt. We don't know exactly, but we do know they're convinced that they're going to die. So Jesus wakes. He rebukes the storm. The storm stops. And here we come back to the nature of Christ. Here's the great paradox. Here's a man who is sleeping because he's tired. Sleeping hard. All this is going on. He's not waking up. Must be very tired. But he's also God. And he wakes up. And in a word, he rebukes the storm. And what happens? The wind stops. The rain stops. The waves stop. Now these guys, again, are sailors. They've been on the water. They know what happens when a storm comes. It comes up. It gets more violent. It goes away. The sea slowly calms down. The winds calm down. This was like that. He said a word, and it stopped. It ceased. They're sitting there with their hair dripping wet, looking around going, huh, I thought I was just about to die, and now Jesus is mad at me because he rebuked them too. So this is a paradox. Two natures in one person. This is, this is God. Their fear of the storm is suddenly, here's the, the phrase I'll repeat from the last verse there. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? So all this has happened. Jesus commands the storm. It ceases. The waves cease. And now they're fearful. They're still fearful, but they're fearful in a completely different way. Their fear has been relocated and changed from a fear of nature around them, a fear of things being out of control, to suddenly being in the presence of somebody that they... They should have known some of these things, but this is now evidence that they're in the presence of somebody who has way more control of things than they've ever thought. They've seen him perform miracles. They've listened to him teach. They've listened to his promises. They've probably thought, those sound really good. I hope they're true. And then he made nature itself stop like that. Now, this is 
no less or more miraculous than turning water into wine, which was his first miracle. But this is pretty, pretty astounding. These guys who are very attuned to nature, if you're a farmer, if you're a fisherman, if you work in the fields, the oil fields, you know what weather is like and you know how to adapt to it. These guys were very attuned to nature and suddenly nature changed at the word of this man that was in the boat with them. It was right next to them. They're standing in the presence of God and they're beginning to realize it. And what happens? A fear comes on them. A righteous fear. A holy fear. A fear that was a fear of a storm and suddenly that fear is gone. But now they're fearing the power of this man in a, in a good way as we should. Who is this man? The answer is it's God. So on an aside here, interesting to think about, is where did this storm come from? If God commanded this storm to cease, well, what brought the storm about in the first place? And the answer is, ultimately, this is God's storm. This is God's world. This is our Father's world. Now, there are storms that come, and let me go ahead and put another aside here. Every time I say storm from here on out, can be a metaphor. In the scripture, we're talking about a storm. We're talking about bad weather. But the example here, the storm can be anything in our life. We go through storms. Some of you have been through physical storms, weather storms that have caused damage. We have people in our house whose house has been burned down from lightning. People in our church, sorry, not our house. No, that doesn't happen. Storms of life. But back to this, where did the storm come from? Maybe... The storm was caused by Satan. Satan brings storms. Look at Job. What happens to Job? Satan approaches God and challenges the faith of Job, says you wouldn't, that guy wouldn't worship you if he wasn't so blessed. That's why he worships you. See what happens if you take a step away, and the Lord says, take it away. Well, then what happens? A storm rises up. That's Satan's storm. This could have been Satan's storm. Satan would have loved to, to drown Jesus. He would have loved to drown the disciples. And maybe Jesus walks away on the water. He'd be like, well, I'm just going to make him have to start over and annoy him. Jesus is being challenged and tempted by Satan all the time to leave the path he's on. But Satan is always trying to do that. But Satan, I think it was uh, Martin Luther said, Satan is on a leash. If you think about what Satan does in the end of Christ's ministry, before he's tempting him, he's saying, take this, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He wants him to leave the path he's on. But then what does he do at the very end? What does Satan do at the end? He enters into Judas. He makes sure that Judas betrays Jesus. What is Satan doing? He's sowing the seeds of his own destruction. Every act that Satan does, he willfully does to destroy us, to try to go against the will of God, to try to hurt God's people, to try to hurt Jesus. That is his goal. That is his will. But God's will is greater. And so when Satan has a desire that is everything in him to destroy Jesus, well, what do we know? Christ's death was God's eternal plan. And Satan is God's lackey. And what he does is evil. And maybe he brought this storm up. God uses the storm. God rules the atoms of the universe. He holds them in his hand. And so this storm is not out of his control from the very get-go. So there's an aside. That was a long one, sorry. Jesus wakes, he rebukes the storm, it stops, and he rebukes them. Luke says, Jesus tells them, where is your faith? Mark says, why are you so afraid? 
Have you still no faith? Matthew, Jesus says, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why did he rebuke them? He rebukes them, and his rebuke in the storms of life can come to us as well. When we are in a storm, when we have little faith, he rebuked them for being panicked and agitated. Now, I don't think his rebuke was just saying to be, pan- to be agitated is sinful. But to be agitated because of the lack of faith is the problem here. And really, it could be all around. They're at their wits' end. They're beside themselves. They're losing control. They're panicked. He isn't rebuking emotion, but he's rebuking the lack of faith produced by the emotion. He's saying to them and he's saying to us, you are my disciples and you shouldn't lose control. It says he rebukes them. We don't know the exact words he used, but he rebuked what they did, which was they panicked and they told him, we're going to die. Do you not care? And his words, I think we can consider to say, You're my disciple, and there's no reason for you to be this agitated, to lose self-control. That's what worldly people do. A Christ follower should be content. Now, that ain't easy. The Apostle Paul tells us, I've learned that whatever state I am in, to be content. That is a possibility that exists within us as believers, to be content in the circumstances of life, to be content in the storm, to have self-control. Paul finishes that phrase from Philippians and says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So don't let this just come across as saying, well, they just shouldn't have been mad. No. In the power of the Spirit, they can control their emotions. They can control their fears, and they can recall what they know, the truth. And this is the second part of the rebuke. What they're agitation, what their fear implies is that Christ, who is with them, cannot be trusted, that they have no confidence in him. They said, Matthew records, do you not care that we perish? With all they'd seen and heard, what they knew that Jesus had said about himself, they're throwing it overboard, as it were. They thought he doesn't care for us, or he's going to let us die. Or he can't do anything about it. Do we find ourselves in this same state of panic? Do we find ourselves thinking the same thing of the Lord? That maybe he's just sleeping. Maybe this is not a big deal to him. It's a big deal to me. So, Lord, why we panic when trials come? We panic in storms when the path is difficult for whatever reason. We get fearful. We get anxious. What does that imply that we think about Christ, who is our Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. That truth, do we remember that? Or do we forget about it in these times? I think uh, we often do. That implication and the lack of trust, a lack of confidence in our Savior. So we have this trial of faith. Okay, what what are you talking about, faith? What is the nature of faith? If you're going to have a trial of faith, well, let's define what faith is. Having faith and understanding faith are two different things. They're related, but they're not the same. And I don't want to put a burden on you. So if you think, well, I don't understand faith, then does that mean I'm not a Christian? I'd say, no, it doesn't. Why? Because faith comes from God. It's a gift. 
Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I did not put it up here. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith is a gift. What makes you a Christian is that you've been given the gift of faith by God through the Holy Spirit, and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to save us with our faith. In our faith we believe. But that faith, first gift from God. We're saved by faith, but that doesn't mean we understand it. That we understand the working of faith. That we understand uh, a lot of things about Christ when we first come to know him. But we're meant to understand more and more as we walk. We have this walk, this life of faith. What makes you Christian is you're given the gift of faith. And it's the start. It's the start of a walk of faith that comes at then and continues. God sets us off into the Christian life, but we have to walk in it. And in this walk, storms come. We'll face trials. Our faith will be tried. Sometimes because of our sins, we bring on storms because of the, we stir up the storm. We're all capable of that. So, I mean, when I say that, in my mind, I imagine in yours too, certain individuals appear and you think, yep, that person is a whirlwind or is quite capable of it. You think of the, uh, the, the little devil spinning in the cartoon, right? I forget his name. But storms come. We stir up our own storms sometimes. Satan challenges us with storms. And sometimes, and I would say all of these storms, God brings storms and trials in our life. And why? Because that's what the Bible says. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 8. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Look in these verses, and it says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. If need be, what does that part mean? Boy, that changes this verse. You leave that out, and you can take this verse in a whole different direction. I'm just going to leave it out for a second. Though now for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. Yeah, some bad things have happened. Nope, there's a little clause in here we can't leave out. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. He's saying, Peter is saying, there was a need for that trial, and it came. You needed a trial. Where did it come from? Well, it had to come from the Lord. Satan's not about meeting our needs, though sometimes he does. He doesn't mean to. He met our greatest need in participating in the death of Christ. He didn't mean to do that, but he did. He didn't mean to to nail our sins to the cross, but he was there to help drive the nails. If you need a trial, it's going to come. Though it is tested by fire, that's our faith he's talking about, to test the genuineness of our faith. James 1, verse 2. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. James is telling us the same thing. You are going to fall into trials, and when you do, you should be joyful of it, because when your faith is tested, patience comes. Are these random trials? Is James just commenting, say, like, it just so happens that the random chance of life, trials happen. I don't, think, I don't think you can read that verse 
I think that there isn't a design and a plan for trials in our life. Some storms and trials, say all, all storms and trials, are allowed by God, or they wouldn't happen. Um, they are ordained by God. Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So Paul writing to these Philippians, he says, you're suffering, and that is a gift to you. It was granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. Storms come. We must be prepared. The storm is bad, but the trial of faith is worse. When we have the doubts, the storm is bad, but when we begin to doubt faith, it's worse. These men are on the boat. They have plenty to be concerned about in the storm, to bail the water, to survive the storm. But the worst thing was to think that Jesus didn't care. They had been through so much, they'd seen the miracles and how anticlimactic this ending was going to be. They'd been promised the kingdom. And here, Jesus was just going to let it all go. All those things he said wasn't going to happen, or maybe not for them. They began to doubt Christ. This is a trial of faith. Why does God allow me to suffer? Why is this person successful while I am not? Why doesn't God break through this situation? Why doesn't he send revival to the church, to the nation? Our faith is tried in these moments. It's tested. So how can we have a faith that not only withstands the trial, but is also a help to us in a trial? A faith that is really a feeling, which is often what we cling to is feelings instead of faith, that's based off of how we feel. And that's not going to hold up because feelings change. Feelings come and go. Feelings are up. Feelings are down. They're changeable. We have to have more than a feeling. It needs to be built on truth and God's truth. We have to engage truth, which means we have to use our mind. Faith requires thinking. And that's the nature of these trials. When Jesus says, where is your faith? The implication is, okay, guys, you've got faith. Where is it? Have you ever heard the Lord asking you that question? You've got faith. You know things. Now, where is it? Where are you putting that? Are you going to use it? Are you going to use this knowledge? Faith isn't automatic. It's not a magic response. It's like, I've been blessed with faith, so if a storm comes, bing, it just bounces off. i got a faith shield. Yeah, we, what are we called to do? To bear the shield of faith. It's not just there. It's not a magical force field. It's something we have to hold up. Faith isn't automatic. It is an active activity. It's something we do. It has to be exercised. The disciples had this faith, but they weren't engaging it. They knew things, but they weren't leaning into what they knew. They weren't exercising it in the situation for that situation. They were not taking it up as the shield of faith. They weren't thinking. They were feeling Their feelings were driving their thinking. And so when your feelings drive your thinking, boy, I know this, you can think some really crazy stuff. Amen? And sometimes you think, how could I think that? Well, you can feel all kinds of things. And if your thinking is following your feelings, well, be prepared for some stinking thinking. I think Brother Johnson used to say that. Rather, the situation... They weren't thinking. They were being controlled by their feelings. The situation was controlling them. The storm was pulling their strings. They needed to take, faith, take hold of their faith and say, we know this is all going on, 
but we trust in Jesus, we're not going to panic. We need to do this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I, I love the way he puts this. He says, it's a guy who wrote this book, faith is a refusal to panic. And that, you could say, okay, well, I don't have to, believe her, to be a believer to say, okay, well, that makes sense. And that's true. Faith, though, for a Christian is a refusal to panic. It's to say, I know this is happening, but I know these things are true. And I'm not going to panic. The poet Robert Browning, in a longer phrase, he says, faith is unbelief kept quiet. And he uses the example, I don't know if you've ever seen, I don't know where it originated from, of uh, the angel, Archangel Michael slays a dragon. It's from the Bible, but then it's translated into this sculpture. He's got a sword and there's a dragon under his foot. He's like this. Well, Robert Browning was a poet and he says, faith is unbelief is that dragon, that serpent, under your foot. And you keep it there. And in the poem, he says, and you're enlivened to feel it writhe because you're smashing it. I love that imagery, though, to think. That's what faith is. Faith says, yeah, this is unbelief. It's there. I know what it is. I got my foot on it. If I didn't have faith, I wouldn't touch it. I'd be scared of it. But faith says, no, I can take unbelief and I can hold it down. So how do we do these two things? Step one. Decide, I'm not going to be controlled by my circumstances. Now, any self-help person can tell you that. Don't be controlled by your circumstances. As believers, we should also know that. We have to pull ourselves up, but we have help in doing that. We have the Holy Spirit to assist us in that. We're not alone. I'm not going to be controlled by these circumstances. And step two is to remind yourself to think, what do I know, what do I believe What is true? I'm not going to be controlled by this. I'm going to think upon and be controlled by this, by God's word. That is what the disciples didn't do. They should have reminded themselves, is it possible that this boat could go down with Jesus Christ in it? When he promises all these things, it's not possible. We've seen miracles. We've seen the blind healed. We've seen the lame walk. Is there anything Christ can't do? I'm sure he can steal this storm. He told us the hairs on our head are numbered. So if this is where we die, this was the plan. Those are things they've heard. They know he loves them. They're not dwelling on those things. They should remember those things. We do the same thing. All those things apply to us. When we are in the storm and when we're beginning to doubt and when we're being controlled, we need to stop, think, how can I lift myself up out of this and remember the truth God sent his son to die for me on the cross. That's a big deal. I'm a child of God. I'm a joint heir with Christ. Christ is my brother. God is my father. That's a lot bigger deal than being in this boat, being in this storm, being in this disappointment. Those two truths. Or we think of the things we sing. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. Or think of verses, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Think of verses like that. And then think of the situation and think, if that verse is true, why do I need to be so fearful? Enliven your faith. Your faith is there. Activate it. Think upon it. This is how faith reasons. It holds on to truth. It reasons from what it knows to be true. And that's how you apply faith. You apply faith to the particular situation with truth. Jesus asked them, where is your faith? 
He's saying, it's time to apply some faith, fellas. Yeah, use the bucket, bail the water out, but have faith. But it doesn't happen automatically. If you focus on the situation, what are you not focusing on? The Lord. Turn your eyes on to Christ. That's easy to say. You've heard it said many times. It's harder to do sometimes. But if we're looking at Christ, if we're thinking on Christ, we can't be so enwrapped in what's going on that isn't Christ, the trial, the storm. You say, I know these things about you, Lord. I'm going to apply them to this situation. I don't know how it's going to work out, but I know you have a purpose, and I'm going to hold on. I'm going to make it through. Whatever your purpose is, it will come, which is true. It may be you go down in the boat. There were boats that went down. But throughout Scripture, we have in Psalm, I think it's one, well, I didn't write it down. I think it's 107. What are the people that are dying on the boat? They cry out for help, and the Lord helps them. These guys should have known that. They knew their Old Testament. You focus on the truth. Nobody welcomes a trial. Nobody wants a storm. But once we're in it, we ought to say, it's okay, let it come. I'm standing on these promises. I'm resting in this boat. Nothing can happen but what God allows. Take the storm, take the trial as an opportunity to prove your faith and bring glory to God. Now, that sounds well and good, but it isn't easy. We're like the disciples. We're often feeble. We're often frail. We're often of little faith. Faith still, though. Little faith. We have this assurance, though, and this is, this is the last thing, but such an important thing to take from these guys. I don't want to sound like I'm just saying, well, these guys were just hopeless. I mean, they were. That's kind of what the point was. But what did they do? One really important thing they did. They cried to Jesus. They said, we're hopeless, Lord. We're going to die. And even in saying, which they shouldn't have said, do you not care? They still cried out to the Savior. The Savior. And what did he do? He heard their cry. As weak their faith, as little as their faith was, Jesus hears their cry. They still had faith. They had enough faith to go to him. To not give up on him. They went to him. Their last hope. A little faith. And they were convinced he didn't care. Maybe. But they still went to him and that was the right thing. They took their little faith and they took it to Christ. And he received them. He answered their need. He rebuked them, but he stopped the storm. He stilled the storm. He didn't turn away. He brought them peace. He brought them blessing. When Jerry was teaching in the uh, Pilgrim's Progress, there was a character you may remember. His name, Little Faith. What happened to Little Faith? He was on the road, and I can't remember the guy's names. They came up to him, and they, they took his little purse, and that illustration was, is in that little purse of the little truths and the little hopes and the little joys that you live by day by day. And the example of made by little faith, Christian says in the Pilgrim's Progress, is he will make it to the celestial city. He didn't lose his, his jewels. They're there. You know, he stored those things in heaven. But he lost that thing that, got, that was that joy for him every day. And that can happen to us. I think that's what Bunyan is saying. In our little faith, when we have little faith, we can get to the door of heaven with nothing left, starving. But our faith, though little, we get to heaven. Now, I, want, I, don't, I don't want it to be that way for myself. 
So I need to strengthen myself so that I'm not in the storms removed of everything, but to keep on to those things and to refill that, that satchel, that purse, that backpack of faith. So I encourage you, don't let little faith be a discouragement. Don't give up and say, well, I have little faith, so I just give up. No, little faith can become big faith because the Lord is good. His truth is eternal, and it's right there for us to take in. Let's pray. We'll go. Father God, help us to remember who you are. Help us, Lord, to remember that you've loved us from the very beginning with a love that we can not even comprehend, Lord, but you've given us so much to to begin to grasp the depths, the heights, the width of your love for us, Lord. Lord, help us to trust that you give us grace for today, grace for the moment, grace for the things in the future, and Lord, the things in the past are done. Your promises don't sink based off of things in the past, Lord, but they're for us to have hope in and to grow in and to be strengthened in for today, for tomorrow. Be with us now as we go to the service. Help us to worship you with our voices, with our hearts, Lord. Prepare our hearts for your word. Pray for Jerry as he preaches to us today that you would be glorified in in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.